Welcome to Your Magic. I'm Michelle T. And on this episode, we are celebrating one whole year podcasting. Incredible. In honor of that, today we are going to depart from our normal format and do a deep, occasionally gruesome dive into the Malleus Maleficarum, the book that taught the West to fear witches and its influence is still felt today. Now, the story you're about to hear happened in the 1400s, and obviously, I am not a scholar, right? I did my own research, and also, I have my own opinions about the misogyny I'll be talking about. But if I got anything wrong, we are happy to hear from you. Hey, listeners. I'm Molly Elizalde, a co-founder here at Your Magic. And as Michelle just said, this is our one-year anniversary of the podcast. It takes six people to make your magic, and we all work other jobs in order to make it happen. In order to continue making this podcast, we need your support. If you don't already know, we have a Patreon, and I'm here today to ask you to join us over there. You can find us at patreon.com slash thisisyourmagic. Your contribution goes towards making our free newsletter where you can read original essays and comics. You'll also get Moon Cycle Tarot Astrology readings, and you can join us for our monthly tarot workshops where you can ask Michelle questions and deep dive into the tarot card by card. If every listener of this podcast gave us $1 a month, it would make a huge difference towards funding our production costs. So if your magic has ever inspired you to try a spell, or if you've ever shared an episode with your coven, we would love to see you over on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Witches have been so famously feared and loathed, scapegoated and punished for so very long, it's easy to forget that it wasn't always that way. Sometime between folk magic being a very normal, ordinary thing, and then the torture of witches throughout Europe and America, there was a moment in time when even the very powerful Catholic Church didn't give too much of a fig about witchcraft. I mean, it was frowned upon, certainly, but no one was being murdered about it. Perhaps people recalled their mothers and grandmothers, you know, whipping up tinctures and following the path of the moon. And so it simply seemed a type of knowledge, female maybe, or from another generation. Perhaps being older and womanly, its power just wasn't even taken that seriously. Whatever the reason, it's curious to ponder how Christian Europe went from tolerating vestiges of paganism to murdering so many people for witchcraft that one village was said to resemble a burned forest. That many charred funeral pyres stood smoking in the cobbled streets. Heinrich Kramer, Tyrolean inquisitor, obsessive 15th century incel, prototypical troll, a vengeful German churchman who vowed that his humiliating failure to prosecute a badass Austrian party girl would be the last time such a woman escaped his wrath. His work, The Malleus Maleficarum, is the tract that established witches as the worst of heretics, imagining their lascivious and patently absurd activities and detailing best practices for proving and punishing their evil. 
Let's start at the Catholic Inquisition, why don't we? Its purpose, when it was founded in the 1100s, was to stop out heretics. Heretics being specifically those working against the Catholic Church, right? Undermining its efforts, making statements about, you know, Jesus not being God, and other very reasonable freedom of religion observations. Many so-called heretics railed against the falseness and hypocrisy of the popes and all their riches. The Catholic Church had an, if you're not with us, you're against us stance. So to be vocal about finding the church's teachings fraudulent meant you risked being burned alive as punishment. That's where it started, the burning alive thing. At the start of the Inquisition, witchcraft was more of a secular problem. If you were accused of harassing your neighbor by way of sorcery, you'd wind up before the king's justices. They handled the matter. The church wasn't involved in these like small claims court dust-ups. But about a hundred years in, Pope Alexander IV noted that individuals chatting with demons and using sorcery to further their will perhaps did equal heresy. He was just kind of throwing it out there. The Old Testament was clear about not tolerating spellcasters and fortune tellers and those who consult with ghosts. If these activities were ungodly, then they must fall into the realm of the devil, right? And no one wanted the church to go belly up like Lucifer. Under this pope's new conclusion in the year 1258, it became acceptable for the Inquisition to try individuals for heresy based on an accusation of witchcraft. But that didn't mean it happened very much. The anti-witch frenzy grew slowly. Thomas Aquinas, that misogynist, he fanned some flames. When the church turned against their militia, the Knights Templar in the 1300s, they utilized charges of witchcraft to bring them down. Pope John XXII super legitimized witchcraft when he accused one of his bishops of using sorcery to try to kill him in 1317. Then, in the 1340s, Europe was hit hard by the plague, and we all know how a pandemic can make people paranoid and prone to conspiracy. Heinrich Kramer was born in 1430. I wonder what sign he was. And sources say he was pretty wild about the church from the get-go. He was young when he joined the Dominicans, the order of monks charged with managing the Inquisition. Heinrich took to it with gusto and was especially psyched to persecute witches. Now, unfortunately for him, though there was theoretical grounds to prosecute witches for heresy, Heinrich found it hard to get a witch before the Inquisition's assessors. I guess that just like today, the medieval period had some folks who trended toward decency and chillness, while others, like Heinrich, veered toward unhinged drama. He had a particularly tough time making a case against a Tyrolean woman named Helena Schuberin in the town of Innsbruck, a snowy, lakey place that encompasses northern Italy and eastern Austria. Helena seems pretty cool, you guys. Hans P. Brodel, in his book The Malleus Maleficarum and the Construction of Witchcraft, describes her as an aggressive, independent woman not afraid to speak her mind. But she found herself on the receiving end of some town gossip after a noble knight named Jorg Spies turns up dead. Knight Jorg had been sick, right? And the orders he'd received from his doctor was to avoid the home of Helena Schuberin. Now, Helena had a rich husband. Maybe they threw big parties. Maybe they were doing opium or drinking beer brewed with belladonna. Maybe noble knight Jorg was hitting the medieval intoxicants too hard at Helena's ragers, and the doctor knew it. And that's what he meant. I mean, I'm deeply speculating here. But it is weird that the doctor was literally, keep away from Helena's house or you'll die. And then he died. Was he having an affair with her and was poisoned by her jealous husband? 
Maybe he had some sort of dirt on Helena and she was poisoning him. Maybe he was having an affair with her husband. Do I watch too much ID Discovery? Probably. Listen, word on the streets of Innsbruck was that it might have been witchcraft. This is the kind of tea Heinrich lives for. Word of this mysterious death, the doctor's ominous warning, Helena's aggressive independent personality, the townspeople's gossip of magic, it sends him flying to Innsbruck faster than a colonial witch with a broom up her vagina. You either know that reference or you don't, okay? He sets himself up with some sermons at the local church and gets to harassing Helena. But good luck, Heinrich, because the lass lives up to her fearsome reputation. Upon meeting her assessor in the street, Helena jumps in his face, shouting, Fie on you, you bad monk! May the falling evil take you! Okay, fie on you, you bad monk! May the falling evil take you! I have chills. This is an amazing diss. She's good. Helena mostly avoids Heinrich's sermons, of course, and urges others to as well, and Heinrich takes this as evidence of her sorcery. You would think he'd be happy about her absence, since when she does attend, she heckles him, calling him an evil man in league with the devil. Yes, Helena, flip that script. Heinrich eventually manages to begin a trial for Helena, along with six other women, her witchy girl gang, no doubt. But the local authorities aren't having it. Maybe they're Team Helena, maybe they don't believe in witchcraft. Maybe they think Heinrich is a nerd or that the Catholic Church is a bully. Either way, the powers of Innsbruck actually kick Heinrich out of town. I can and will imagine the victory bash Helena and her rich hubby threw when that happened. Let the nightshade-laced mead flow. But a troll doesn't give up that easy. Heinrich was far from done with Helena and the witches of Innsbruck. In a big baby move, he went straight to the Vatican and whined to the Pope about how terribly he was treated in Innsbruck, basically asking him to write a note telling everybody that they have to take his authority seriously. Pope Innocent VIII. Wait, can you even with these popes? That name is so ironic, it's actually offensive. Pope Innocent VIII invested in the trade of enslaved Africans in Spain, right? He ran a scheme of targeting noble women and accusing them of heresy so that the church could seize their money. And he literally created positions within the church to be sold to the highest bidder. Innocent, how dare they? Anyway, Pope Innocent obliges Heinrich. He'd recently promoted Heinrich to the head of the Inquisition, so they were buds. Pope Innocent draws up a papal decree called the Sumus Desiradante Effectibus, which is Latin for, you better be nice to Heinrich. It affirms that witches are real, that they are heretics, that the church has the right to try them, and anyone who interferes are themselves heretics and subject to punishment. Heinrich returns to Innsbruck all smug with his papal decree. Wait, can we take a minute to envision this jerk with the help of some existing medieval portraits? Medieval artists had an infamously strange gaze, did they not? In some paintings, Heinrich's face appears to be a popped football, his bald head ringed with a classic Dominican fringe. One portrait depicts him as emaciated with a prominent chin waddle. In another, he's plump, his eyes quite near his nose. One portrait is not so odd. His bulky black jacket looks cozy and is stylishly belted. He sports a little beret, and his cheekbones look like the fruits of a YouTube contouring tutorial. Willem Dafoe could definitely play him in a biopic. He's seated in a little wooden room, caught up in his thoughts, lost in a reverie. He looks like a poet being gently touched by the muse, not like a medieval serial killer penning his macabre how-to book. 
Okay, now that we're all imagining Willem Dafoe striding into a medieval village waving a popple bull, let's continue. With the legitimizing church document in hand, the leaders of Innsbruck had less power to evict Heinrich from the village. And so a witch trial against Helena Schuberin and her best bitches officially commenced. The trial lasted about a month from Leo season in the summer to Virgo season at the start of fall. What's interesting is that though there were townspeople accusing Helena and company of witchcraft, none of them made mention of the devil. It was the church who was equating witchcraft, pagan folk magic, with Satanism. And Heinrich did bring accusations of fraternizing with the devil, celebrating the orgiastic witch's Sabbath and all that. Apparently, Heinrich based much of his accusations against Helena on her supposed promiscuity. But in spite of these efforts, the trial ended without a confession. There was a month or so of respite where Helena could return to her sumptuous home and party or recuperate. But after not so long, Heinrich was back. He would get a confession from his witch if he had to torture it out of her, which, as we know, was the church's favorite method of extracting confessions for crimes that didn't actually exist. Like the trial, the torturing of Helena and the other accused women lasted about a month. A popular medieval device for such occasions was a hideous contraption called the strapado. So a person's hands were tied behind their back and then lifted high in the air so that your body hung heavily in such a contorted fashion and your shoulders dislocated as you dangled, okay? Weights were sometimes attached to the body to make an impossibly gruesome situation more so. The victim was generally dead within an hour. There were other methods of getting women to confess to non-existent love affairs with Satan. Sleep deprivation often brought about a successful disclosure. I mean, after being kept awake by devil-obsessed maniacs for four or five consecutive nights, who wouldn't start hallucinating that they're the consort of the horned god? One of Heinrich's favorite torture tasks was to have an accused witch carry a chunk of red-hot iron for precisely three steps without dropping it. If you could do this, you were not a witch, even though it seems like it would take supernatural powers to override your body's instinct to toss it from your swiftly blistering hands. Now, if you did have a natural reaction, if you burst into tears and screamed fuck and like dropped the glowing blob of iron to the ground, well, you were a witch. A final common torture for the era was the swimming of witches, that famous lose-lose in which the accused was hogtied and dropped into water. If she lived, she was a witch and was imminently doused in flames. If she drowned, well, the poor lass had been innocent after all, but she's gone to a better place now, hasn't she? Actually, in this case, maybe. I couldn't find any writing that specified which malevolent method Heinrich employed to manifest his confession from Helena, but a month of torture probably featured a sickening variety. However, at the end of it all, Heinrich lost the church could not prove that Helena Schuberin had murdered the noble knight George Spees with witchcraft or otherwise. Helena was truly unbreakable. Whatever torture was deployed upon her, she did not crack. And I'd like to imagine the barrage of insults she hurled upon the Weasley Inquisitor. Heinrich, as you can tell, was not the sort of gent to adopt a you win some, you lose some attitude about his witch trials. He had a hard time letting go. His obsession with Helena continued to fester, and he stayed in Innsbruck to harass her, even after the local authorities again demanded he leave. It took an appeal to the bishop to finally get him to quit bothering the woman and leave Innsbruck. 
Heinrich gathered up all his fury and resentment, his wounded Dominican ego and Catholic righteousness, and crawled back under a rock in Cologne, Germany. He focused the storm of psychedelic rage swirling inside him, and he began to write. Published in 1486, the Malleus Maleficarum was Heinrich Kramer's life work, his lasting legacy. Although fellow Dominican Jacob Sprenger was listed as a co-author on editions published after 1519, Heinrich died in 1505, and scholars now credit the entire authorship of the Malleus Maleficarum to Heinrich Kramer. There's also an internet rumor that Sprenger fucking hated Kramer, but I couldn't find anything to really back that up. So what is the Malleus, this medieval piece of revenge porn penned by a 15th century incel, actually about? Heinrich meant it to be the legal bones behind the Christian scripture, thou shalt not suffer a sorceress to live. First and foremost, it is a legal document that includes and elaborates upon Pope Innocent's papal bull instituting witchcraft as heresy. It lobbies the courts of Europe to prosecute it. It delineates a sort of best practices for trying witches, advising that judges wear a charm of blessed salt around their neck, that witches should be stripped and shaved and led into the courtroom backwards. It explained how to gain confession via torture and the sort of punishment by death to pursue once witchery has been established. As burning of the stake was the most traditional way to dispose of heretics in general, it was easily applied to witches. As Heinrich believed God would not allow an innocent person to be mistakenly murdered for witchcraft, that took care of any concern about wrongful death and what have you. Now, officially establishing witchcraft as heresy effectively created another legal rule. It became mandatory that people believe in witches and witchcraft. To deny their evil legitimacy would subject you to their fate. If you perhaps wanted to believe in witches, but worried that you just didn't know enough about them or really understand their customs, here's where Heinrich really shines, in the portion of the Malleus that describes what exactly the witches are up to. Surely, their most interesting activity was causing the penises of men to vanish from their bodies and reappear up high in the treetops, cozy together in a nest, as if a flock of baby birds. And, like a flock of baby birds, the witches would feed these magically castrated phalluses a meal of oats. Don't believe me? I don't blame you. But let me quote from the book. <clears throat> what are we to think about those witches who shut up penises in what are sometimes prolific numbers, 20 or 30 at a single time, in a bird's nest or some kind of box, where they move about in order to eat oats and fodder as though they were alive, something which many people have seen and is reported by common gossip. Many people saw this? Like, many? Okay, I mean, common gossip is never wrong. Now, to Heinrich's credit, he didn't think that the witches were actually stealing penises from the bodies of men. He wasn't crazy. To remove a penis, you'd need a proper demon's help. And frankly, most witches weren't that powerful. What they could do is make you hallucinate that your penis had vanished and then give you a vision of it eating oats in a tree. Likewise, the witches of medieval Europe couldn't actually turn you into an animal because they didn't have that level of demonic power. They could only make you think they turned you into an animal. Props to Heinrich for simultaneously minimizing the witch's powers while affirming their terror and malevolence. Hallucination or no, who wants to look down and find their junk no longer in their pants? Not I. And remember, lest you scoff at this tale and call it unbelievable, you now risk being accused of heresy yourself. 
The Malleus goes on to relate much delicious witchy doings, such as the tale of a woman, miffed that she had not been invited to a wedding, who fled to a hillside, pisses in a bowl, stirs her urine counterclockwise, and brings down a storm upon the festivities. A great spell to try yourself next time you're feeling left out of your own community. Actually, in case you are interested, here's what you need to do in order to become a medieval-style witch. Much of this lore had already been established by the Catholic Church by the time Heinrich came along, but he elaborated on it and popularized it. First, you must swear off Christianity, well that's easy, and enter into a pact with the devil. Check. Next, you put your money where your mouth is and seal the deal by actually having sex with the devil. Now, the devil being satanic has particular tastes. While he was reportedly a good time in the sack, a seductive lover and all that, he also required his new acolytes to prove their love with the osculum in fame. That's Latin for the shameful kiss. It was a kiss upon the devil's anus, or a bit of a medieval rim job, I guess depending upon the enthusiasm of the witch. The devil would then show his appreciation by granting the witch the gift of flight, very important if she was going to make it to the frequent witch gatherings in the deepest woods, presided over by Satan himself. Who'd want to miss that? By taking a special ointment made from the fat of unbaptized babies and applying it to a broom or a household chair, these objects would then be enchanted enough to serve as a vehicle to get you to the deep woods witch party. Of course, there are theories that the ointments were made with hallucinogens, not baby fat, and then inserted into the vagina via broomstick or chair leg, causing quite a flight, if you know what I mean. While this was all standard church lore, Heinrich claimed that if a witch for some reason was unable to journey to the satanic rave, maybe because she was lazy or suffered social anxiety or she was, you know, under a seven-day quarantine for COVID, she could join remotely by lying on her left side and breathing a blue vapor from her mouth. The vapor acted as a sort of medieval Zoom room, allowing the witch to observe the goings-on from the comfort of her cottage. But really, you'd rather be there in person, as the gatherings were veritable sex parties, and possibly the only place a lady could get it on with a demon. Strangely, Heinrich noted the nobility of the demons' natures, and suggested that many of them probably didn't even want to have sex with the witches, they were just doing it because it was like their job. It feels a little like Heinrich is projecting right here. Obviously, demons love having sex with witches. After the orgy portion of the gathering is over, everyone gets to cursing and hexing and slaughtering and eating unbaptized babies. Or the drinking of unbaptized babies. After they've been slow cooking in the cauldron all this time, the flesh falls off the bones, creating a rather slurpable bone broth. Don't you dare yuck at me. I'm simply sharing the knowledge of a rather important Dominican monk, okay? If you want to see it for yourself, there is currently a first edition for sale on the internet for $202,000. While the Malleus has obviously stood the test of time, I mean, here we are talking about it, it had a bit of a rough start. The top theologians of the day, while clearly not averse to burning your average heretic alive, drew the line at the witch hunts. Heinrich went out trying to get some Catholic influencers, some folks over at the University of Cologne, to blurb his little book, and he was told that what he'd written was unethical, illegal, and also inconsistent with established Catholic beliefs on demonology. So Heinrich does what I, as an author, have always wished I could do. He just makes up some praise for his work and forges a celeb signature or two. But Heinrich did find a lot of support among his fellow Dominicans. 
as the prime movers of the Inquisition. In addition to fighting heresy, they'd taken up arms against prostitution and sodomy. And wouldn't you know, a lot of people who don't like witches even today also don't like queers and sex workers, right? Anyway, the Dominicans love the Malleus Maleficarum. And with their endorsements, boom, the book starts flying off the shelves and Heinrich is a celeb. If you need a talking head for your anti-witchcraft lecture series or an expert witness at your village witch trial, he's your man. He's in high demand all over Europe and even receives a patronage from the Patriarch of Venice. And he's prolific, like the Joyce Carol Oates of anti-witchcraft propaganda. He's always got a new discourse or sermon or defense to promote. Heinrich is made Papal Nuncio, a sort of diplomat to the Pope, and his Inquisition terrain grows to include the Czech Republic. He's what we call failing upwards. While there were always some within the church who thought Heinrich was a ding-dong, the secular world and its justice systems would rely on the Malleus throughout the Renaissance. From 1484 to 1750, about 200,000 people were accused of witchcraft, tortured, and or killed in Western Europe. Famously, most were women, about three-quarters of those charged. The Malleus, of course, explained this tendency for women to fall beneath the thrall of Satan. Their inherent weak faith and sexed-up carnality made them easy marks. Quote, They are defective in all the powers of both soul and body, Heinrich wrote, doubling down on that statement with, quote, Women, therefore, is evil as a result of nature. A man would, on occasion, fall prey to the lure of witchcraft, but it was usually in a more macho, power-seeking way, not as the result of an interior weakness. Heinrich believed there was a hierarchy of evil types of women. Sexy concubines were the worst, followed by midwives with their ancient knowledge and access to babies. And lastly, women who dominated their husbands. But no matter if you don't see yourself represented here, the Malleus claimed that any woman would likely find themselves succumbing to her passions and becoming a witch. Truly, the only way to ensure that you didn't find yourself with your face planted in the devil's buttocks was to live in a religious retreat, having taken a vow of devout chastity. And so we see the virgin versus whore dichotomy dressed up as nun versus witch. Though this was the only foolproof way to prevent your weak female nature from sliding into witchcraft, Heinrich also understood that most people were unlikely to thrive in such an extreme environment. Only a certain type of femme would be able to stand it. The rest, he claimed, are, quote, doomed to become witches who cannot be redeemed, and the only recourse upon the authorities is to ferret out and exterminate all witches. As Heinrich delved deeper into his obsession, it became increasingly clear that witches was simply a code name for women. Heinrich died in 1505, leaving the party while he was still having fun. For 200 years after his death, the Malleus reigned, outselling even the Bible. His legacy traveled across the Atlantic with the European colonizers bound for North America and laid the groundwork for the eventual hanging of witches in what's now Salem, Massachusetts. In 1684, Increase Mather, president of Harvard University, gave the Malleus a shout out in his incredibly titled work, <clears throat> An essay for the recording of illustrious providences, wherein an account is given of many remarkable and very memorable events, which have happened in this last age, especially in New England, by Increase Mather, teacher of a church at Boston in New England. Mather's text reads like the script of a Bloomhouse movie, though, with flying hammers, Satan taking the form of a deer or crows, sulfurous smells, frying pans hanging inside chimneys, and many houses generally molested by demons. 
And I would be remiss in my recommendations here if I did not take a moment to urge you to watch Robert Eggers' incredible film, The Witch, an American folktale, for a scary movie treatment of Heinrich and Increase's fears and fetishes, featuring Anya Taylor-Joy from The Queen's Gambit. Also, you can buy a translation of The Malleus on the interweb and do your own deep dive of this madness. If you are that nerd, you might also enjoy the million-paged book, The Witches, Salem 1692, by Stacey Schiff. I know I do. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with me through this disturbing yet informative history of witch hate and general misogyny. If you are a witchy person, but you're a little scared to explore further, this might be the reason. If you are a witch, but you keep it in the broom closet, you can trace your fears and the fear of those around you back to this one little man hundreds of years ago who could never get over one Helena Schuberin. Seeing how witches are thriving in 2022, in the midst of what feels like a renaissance, I almost feel bad for the schmuck and thought briefly of lighting a candle for him on my altar that he find his way from this place forevermore. Then I thought, fie on you, you bad monk. May the falling evil take you. I'll light one for Helena instead. Thanks for tuning into Your Magic. You can support us, plus get access to a whole bunch of bonus content at patreon.com backslash thisisyourmagic. Every dollar makes our work possible. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thisisyourmagic. You can rate us and subscribe right here on Spotify. Please do what you need to do to never miss an episode. And you can email us at hello at thisisyourmagic.com. We would love to hear from you. This episode was produced and edited by Molly Elizalde, Tony Gannon, and Vera Blossom. We got production support from Angelica Crisostomo. Our executive producers are Ben Cooley, myself, and Molly Elizalde. Our original theme music is by John Kimbrough. Thanks for listening.